Hare Akene today on News Hub Nation. Straight talk with Grant Robertson on house prices with live responses from Tangata Whenua. A special report on rising racism against Asian Kiwis. And Pike family's last ditch efforts to have their loved ones' bodies recovered. Good morning, I'm Simon Shepherd. And I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to News Hub Nation. In political news this week. Cook Island's Prime Minister Mark Brown met with Jacinda Ardern Friday to discuss a two-way travel bubble, but no date has been set. Without a bubble, the Cooks could lose up to 40% of its workforce by the end of the year, according to its Chamber of Commerce. The Nurses Society is warning a trans-Tasman bubble could strain their ability to care for sick people in managed isolation. They're concerned the 40% of rooms currently occupied by low-risk Australians will be filled with travellers from countries with big outbreaks of COVID. And the government unveiled its housing policy reforms this week, including an extension of the Brightline test to 10 years. The Prime Minister has warned the changes will not be a silver bullet, while National has derided them as KiwiBuild 2.0. The only thing that gets more heated than a New Zealand housing market is the debate over how to fix it. Labor campaigned on it two elections ago, and yet in government, it's overseen prices soaring through the roof. Well, now the latest attempt has outraged investors and disappointed first home buyers. Finance Minister Grant Robertson's job is to drive the change. I spoke to him earlier. Let's start with a multiple choice question. Do you want to A, see house prices rise sustainably, or B, see house prices fall? Yeah, well, what we can't afford, and I'm, unfortunately, um, I've never been all that good at multi-choice, so I'm going to well, give you... Well, it's either A or B, isn't it? There's only two options there. <laughs> well, actually, there's not, and, and the point is that what we've seen over the last few months are completely unsustainable house price rises. And so we want to make sure that we're doing something to act against that. Sure. In the end, what happens with house prices is not just a product of government policy. It's a product of things like what the interest rate is, how much supply we've got, and we are adding to that through this package. Yep. So what I do not want to see are the kinds of well, house price rises we've seen in recent times. Yeah, but do you and want to I see them fall see are more first-home buyers involved in the market. OK, so would you like to see them fall? What I want to see is downward pressure on the price rises that we've seen. So that sounds Ultimately, like a yes. Not for downward, me. downward pressure sounds well, like a yes. Downward pressure will mean that we don't see those kinds of price rises that we've seen over the last few months. What I want to see is a market in which first-time buyers can participate well, in which we've got mm. a good supply of high-quality rental properties, yep. in which we're building a lot more housing as well. So ultimately, the final shape of that market isn't something that I dictate. What no. we can do as a government is, put, is, is have settings in place that enable more first-time buyers to be in and enable a more affordable market. So you want and I believe the package okay. we've put forward will make a difference. You that. want an affordable market. If house prices don't fall, how can they become affordable? Because they've gone up by so much. Well, as I say, what we can't afford is to see those continued increases. Look, the market will function when we ha in, a, in a way that all of us will be more comfortable with when we have more supply coming on board. And it's one of the reasons why, in this package, we've exempted new builds from both the changes we're making to interest deductibility and the bright line test, because we want to shift investment to increase that supply. Okay. It's the reason why we've put $3.8 billion in for a housing acceleration and fund, so that we've got build-ready land. We will get All to of those get, things yeah. will contribute to a more affordable market. OK. So what do you think is the right house price income ratio? What, what, what do you think is the right ratio to get an affordable market? 
Look, I mean, again, it is a ratio, so we need to make sure that incomes keep increasing, and we have seen incomes increase over recent years. But don't they need to increase dramatically? They need to increase dramatically Uh, for that ratio to be affordable. What we've got at the moment is a ratio of about 8 to 1 across New Zealand. I don't think that's acceptable. I do want to see that come down. But I'm not going to put a particular number on it today, particularly because this package is just one part of the kind of work that we need to do in the housing market, that local government needs to do in the housing market, that has to be done by by all of the people who participate. So 8 to 1 is a level that I know we can't sustain and have an affordable market. We do want to see that come down. Are you you worried? I mean, you you can lead the discussion. You're leading it with the policy. You can lead the discussion and set the tone by saying, yes, I do want to see a small price fall. I mean, are you just worried that it's purely political and you'll lose the homeowner vote if you do that and it does trigger a fall? No, that's not what it's about. What we do have to respect is that for the vast bulk of New Zealanders, the only home they own is the one that they live in. It's a very important part of their security. I have no desire to undermine for those people that security. What we all know, though, is that the number of people who actually are getting a chance to be a first home buyer, to be an Mm -hmm. owner-occupier, has been compromised by the fact that we've had tax loopholes, the fact that we haven't built enough houses over the last few years. And so we are taking action to deal with that. But, Simon, nobody should, should ever try to claim that there's a silver bullet for the housing crisis or that any one initiative is going to solve this or that it's going to happen quickly. This is a big, complex, long-term challenge, but this package will make a difference. Are you afraid that you might tank the economy, if you say, because we depend on house prices so much and it gives so much confidence to people if they think they have a rising house equity? Are you worried you might tank the economy and tank the confidence? No, that's not, that's not, I don't have that concern. I mean, one of the concerns we have had is that if we did allow house prices to rise at such an unsustainable level over, over a, a long period of time, that would start to become a house price bubble and that would affect economic stability. And one of the reasons that we're stepping in now is to make sure that that does not happen. Look, this is about making sure that as many New Zealanders as possible can buy their own home. For those that can't, that we have rentals that are mm-hmm. stable, that are warm, that are dry... And that we increase the supply overall. So all of those are factors that I can influence, but there are other influences in the housing market as well. Well, let's let's talk about the rental market then. I mean, you've extended the Brightline test to 10 years. Treasury warned that doing so could mean landlords sell up or increase the rents. So does that mean you're going to make the rental situation worse? Less stock, higher rents? No, I don't necessarily believe so. What happens with rents is a product of a number of factors. Uh, The demand and supply side, and we are moving to incentivise more supply. So that's why we're exempting new builds from the Brightline test extension and from the interest deductibility rule changes. It's also affected by people's ability to pay as well. Uh, So we have to make sure that, you know, we keep an eye on what happens in the rental market. But we got a range of advice on this matter. And actually, you know, to be honest, every time we've made a change in housing, we've heard from some people that it'll mean rents will go up um, to an enormous extent, and often that hasn't actually happened when those changes have been made. But we'll keep an eye on okay. that because we obviously want to make sure that renting remains. Would you, would you cap rent? Would you cap rent rises? Would you say you cannot rise them above a certain level every year? 
That's not on our agenda at the moment, but we will keep an eye on what happens. But I don't expect necessarily that we're going to see enormous rent rises out of that. We're certainly hearing a lot of rhetoric about that at the moment. Mm. But I know actually that a lot of the landlords that, that people talk about, the people who've got one property that's you know perhaps there for their retirement, they actually don't do big rent increases. They look after their tenants. We want to keep supporting those yeah. people. They generally hold their homes for longer than 10 years as well. But they might uh, have What to. we're looking at here is that... They might have yeah, to well, do rent let's, increases. Let's now. see how that plays out. Let's see how that plays out. But some of the things that I've heard over the last few days from, from some of the speculators and people who own multiple investment properties is talking about, you know, they might increase rents by a particular amount. Well, what I would say is that under the tenancy tribunal rules, if rent rises are above the market rate, then that can be challenged. And if people do start behaving that way, then that may well be... So you're warning landlords to, to, to like pull their heads in and, and not do massive rent increases when they can, even though you are taking away some of their tools, like the interest deductibility. What I'm saying is that most landlords don't do that and won't do that. Most landlords get on well with their tenants and help look after their tenants. What's important for those who are making some of these claims is actually that the interest deductibility regime uh, is phased out for people who are currently using it over a four-year period. So there's no need for precipitous action in response to that. Uh, for people who are buying properties into the future, they now know that that provision isn't available for them and they may make different choices about their investments as well, a result. Well, that's right. Let's, let's talk about that. I mean, you, you've talked about landlords with multiple properties, but what about the so-called mum and dad investors? Are you concerned that these people who are saving for the future by having a rental property are going to get out of the market now? And how are they going to save for their retirement if it's not profitable or even just equitable or break even to own a rental property? Well, as I say, I think for a lot of those those landlords, they keep their properties for well beyond 10 years, so the bright line extension won't be an issue. But what about them. the interest deductibility? Um, they do leverage them right when up. It comes to, when it comes to interest deductibility, we are phasing that in over that four-year period, which will give those people time to assess whether or not they want to continue with this investment or move to another investment. For them or for new investors, I would say I would encourage you to look at investing in new builds because then you <laughs> okay. will still be able to claim the interest deductibility rules and you'll be adding to the stock. And that's the nature of what we're trying to do here is a package of initiatives that helps not only tilt the balance towards first-time buyers mm. but also gets on top of some of our supply issues. Do you have enough clarity about this interest deductibility on new builds? Because um, we may be hearing that some developers are pushing pause perhaps while they understand exactly what you've put in place. So, obviously, when we're making a significant change like this, we can make the overall decisions, but the process we now go through, as we do with any major tax change, is to consult with those very people on the finer details of this, and people will be able to understand that over the next couple of months. So, obviously, if there are some people who want to take a pause and a breath while that happens, that's fine, um, and we'll have those decisions so, done as so soon does as that... possible. But I would equally be criticised, Simon, if we rushed those decisions and didn't consult with the people. OK, but that... Does that mean that the detail hasn't been worked out and that you rush this policy, particularly the interest deductibility part, in because it blindsided a lot of people? No, I don't believe so at all. Um, we... Um 
went to the country and said we would help address the housing crisis. In the last six months of last year, we saw unsustainable house price rises. We have had to act in response to that. This is a significant change. I accept that. And that's the reason why we will uh, go through and consult on the details of it. But giving New Zealanders a clear signal of how it is that we're going to tilt the balance towards first-time buyers and add to the supply of housing is something we've been called on to do. We've done that. Okay, we'll, we'll consult now on the finer details. We'll talk about first home buyers in a moment, but the extension of the Bright Line test, you ruled that out in the election campaign. So how can voters trust your words? Yeah, so um, obviously um, when we were putting our policy together, we were being advised at that time that actually the effect of COVID-19 would be for house prices to go down. The opposite occurred in the second half of last year dramatically. And so we have had to go forward with a policy such as extending the Bright Line test that we did not plan to do. Mm. What I said in a particular interview was that I ruled out the extension. That actually wasn't what was in the Labor Party's policy for the election. I was too definitive there. I accept I got that wrong. But actually, we've acted now in the face of the circumstances that we've got because I think that's what New Zealanders would so want us to do. I mean, you came into power uh, two elections ago saying you were going to help fix the housing crisis, but last year you were waiting for COVID to do it for you? No, far from it. I mean, we did a number of things in the first term, particularly in our state house building program, which is a, a bigger building program than any government since the 1970s, changing rental laws to make things fairer and more secure for tenants. Um, we did do a lot of things, but this comes back to the, the very comments at the beginning. This is a big complex challenge, decades in the making. There is no single silver bullet for it, but okay. what we've done in our first term and in this package I think will make a difference. Do you think that you have raised the cap enough for first home buyers? I mean, it's gone up between twenty-five dollars and $100,000 depending on where you're trying to buy, but you know, as you say, the prices have gone up way more than that. Uh, are first home buyers still shut out of the market by this policy? Yeah, so we have to find a way of judging where those first-home loan grants and, and, and where the caps come in. And we use the core logic data. Um, the data we used for this was actually from March this year. Mm. Uh, and that data, um, you know, tells us that what the median of the lower quartile is. So this has always been for starter homes. These are for first homes. And this is based on actual data. Now, theoretically, we could put the, the limit to a million dollars. But what that would mean is we would have people in situations where they simply would not be able to service the mortgage. We don't want to put them in that position, so we're using a measure based on real data, and that so, is one that I understand for some people might not get them the home that they want or the home that's immediately available to them, but so it is based you are on a particular them, set of criteria. You're telling them to uh, redefine, to uh, downscale their expectations of what they can get. Is this the way of the government? No, I'm simply saying. I'm simply saying this is. I'm simply saying this is the criteria that we use. It's not an invented number. It comes from the core logic data and the median of the lower quartile of prices yep. in a particular right. geographic area. That's what we're using. We have to have a basis for it, and that seems to us to be the right one. Okay, uh, just quickly, 3.8 billion dollar infrastructure fund. Uh, we don't know who's going to be responsible for that yet. When are the details going to come out about that? 
Well, as Minister Woods has said a couple of times this week, she'll be bringing papers to Cabinet within the next couple of months on that. Okay. But it will be a fund that, that we do with councils. This is about making sure that land that councils, iwi and other ha others have actually has the pipes and the roads and the drains that we need to be able to build the mm -hmm. houses on it. It's a very big sum of money relative to previous funds like this, and it has been provided as grants so that we can actually get on with building those houses. So um, you, there were no Māori housing initiatives in this particular announcement, but in that $3.8 billion for infrastructure, was anything set aside for iwi? Yeah, well, EWI will, be, will definitely be one of the partners in that fund. And, okay. you know, we had conversations as recently as Waitangi with EWI leaders talking to us about the land they've got but needing our help. So we would fully expect EWI um, housing providers to be part of that. But in addition, there will be a Māori housing package in the budget that will build on the previous initiatives we've done in areas like Papakaianga housing and supporting more Māori into home ownership. Why didn't you prioritise them now? Because they are disproportionately being frozen out of the housing market. As I say, we've already had initiatives in previous budgets that have invested in supporting more Māori into home ownership. We will have more in the future as well. And this really comes back to the point. This has to be an ongoing, sustained period of investment in making a fairer housing system. We've got to give each initiative time to work, mm -hmm. and there will be further initiatives as we go on. OK, so that's my last question to you. Is this it? I mean, do you, have you emptied the locker, as it were, of housing initiatives, or what is the next thing you can do? Tell us what the next thing is you can do no, we if it doesn't work. We definitely haven't, and, and you know, I'll wait, we'll wait for the budget to be announced in May, but clearly... When we're addressing such a big, long-term issue that's been decades in the making, we have to keep working, we have to keep investing, supporting more supply, keeping control of demand, looking after renters. That's not going to be done in one budget or one package. We have to keep at it for a sustained period. Grant Robertson, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Simon. As the government announced its plans for first home buyers this week, Māori leaders were giving evidence to the Waitangi Tribunal on how the Crown has failed Māori on housing. Bernie O'Donnell is the chair of the Manukau Urban Māori Authority, and Mary Moeke Tepude has experienced homelessness herself. They watched our interview with Grant Robertson. Kia ora korua. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Mary, I'd like to, to start with you. Mm -hmm. You became homeless in 2017 after a marriage breakup. What was that like, living in a van with your three children? Uh, to be honest, um, being able to come here this morning and let Aotearoa New Zealand know the truth behind it, um, it was very um, disheartening and unfortunate. And the truth is that me and my children should never have ever been homeless in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And, and your story as well, Mary, unfortunately, it's a similar story, isn't it, Bernie, to thousands, tens of thousands of New Zealanders, predominantly Māori, and it is getting worse, much, much worse. Why, why aren't we curbing this crisis, Bernie? In a funny way, um, I feel like I've known Mary for years, even though we've never met, because he's very much um, part of the whānau that uh, continue to be forgotten. Um, just it's, it's failure over... A, a number of generations that have gotten us to the space now where um, we're always an afterthought and, and we then have to remind the government um, that we're here as well and you have an obligation to, to make sure that our communities are warm and safe like every other New Zealander. And I suppose we, we would expect that from this government who talked about uh, obligations to the treaty, talked about the importance of equity and, and, and a Prime Minister who said 
before previously that she's tired of, of failing our people, failing Māori and Pacifica. So when this and it's a great plan. I've got to, I've got to say it's a, good, it's a good start in terms of uh, home ownership for our people. I mean, <laughs> the realities are we're not even in that space. Our people, um, it's just totally out of reach for, of, um, for, for them. And, and, and there's just an opportunity to do something different. I think the whole housing planning can flip everything on its head. You can't just build houses and think you've, you've, you've solved the situation. Quality housing is, is part of a, a, a cornerstone of what we call well-being mm. in Hauwara. But if you just build houses like you've... Uh, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about social housing, actually. If you just continue to build those houses, all you're doing is building new ghettos. Mm. And, and, and the, the, the whānau go in there with the same issues they, they had before they moved into the whare. Mm. So th those are the things we have to start thinking about. How can we re... Um, recalibrate, if you like, how we're, what we're doing with the housing strategy. Because there's that real need for the wraparound support, because Mary, in, in your experience, there wasn't any room in safe houses, or they weren't mm. suitable for your children. You were being turned away, weren't you, by all these mm. private landlords. And then when you went to the Ministry of Social Development, they told you you didn't warrant assistant, assistance, yes. that you weren't destitute enough. So in your experience, how are government agencies treating people that need help? In all honesty, I... I did the hard yards like every first home buyer. I had three jobs. I went to the banks. I went to the mortgage brokers. I did everything that was needed to qualify for a loan and I was able to service that loan by myself. My husband wasn't employed. I didn't get any money from my family. I did it. I did the hard yards. And what happened as a result was because of a claim that was put forward, the money that I was meant to receive for the house to get me and my children a new house was being held in trust, and that money is still in trust today. And so there was just a, it's a, a cookie-cutter approach almost, isn't exactly. it, rather than taking into account your personal circumstances. Mm. And so according to MSD, because I had sold my house and have a huge amount of money that they call settlement, it was being housed in a trust fund through my solicitor, but what they didn't take into consideration when assessing me according to their criteria was that the money was in their account, not in my bank account, so therefore they deemed me as being a rich Māori who had money because the money was there, but it wasn't in my account and the reality is you're sleeping in a van with your three exactly. kids. Exactly. My children and I never intended to look for a rental property, whether it be a private rental or a housing rental. We were never ever thinking like that in terms of selling my home and then moving to another location. But because of the government and their policies, we're in, we were in limbo. And so Bernie, going into the government's announcement this week, this big housing mm. announcement, a cast of a thousand ministers and the prime minister, mm. were you optimistic? And then what did you think after you heard it? To be fair, no. Uh, and then that's pretty much par for the course. Successive governments have failed us, so I knew that would be uh, an, an afterthought. You know, one of the things that Mary talks about, we really have to, to, to cotton on to, um, in terms of Tamaki Makaurau, and especially South Auckland, there's, there's this sort of stigma around us is that we're uh, beneficiaries or we don't do anything and we're the designers, we're the architects of our own fate. If you listen to Mary, she is a work, she, 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 she isn't fully employed. And we've got to start understanding what the working poor look like because there's a growing number of that in our space. And when you, when you live in Auckland, I tell you, especially in the rental property market, 
$400 a week gets you squalor. $500 a week doesn't get you much more. And, and, and generally, and I'm talking about the working poor here, let alone beneficiaries, generally $600 and over is a big strain on a family's income. So when, when the minister... Robertson talks about the property market, uh, the rental property we kept. You've got to look at Tamaki Makoto in its own sort of space because it has its, it's it's almost impossible for our people to live, and and something has to be done about that. And so, to know that none of that 3.8 million dollars has been set aside specifically for iwi is that problematic? Well, iwi is one of the solutions, but I think what we really need to understand is what, how can we change that? How can we use the opportunity of of warm, safe, secure homes? Not houses, homes, and then how can we start working with whānau that need the help around the whānau water stuff. So iwi, absolutely, uh, but also, especially in Tāmaki Makaurau, urban Māori groups, and, and I've got a bit of self-interest in that because I've worked with Muma. But the, the thing about the urban Māori marae that, that I work with, which is Manarewa, Papakura, Ngāwhariwā, Te Te Puia, um, which are South Auckland, they're all on or next to pockets of government-owned land. All they have to do is make them available for the build. And what we should be doing after that is, is understanding that if, if, if housing is the first objective, quality housing is a, homes are the first objective, then the next one is around whānau order. It's an opportunity for us to, to engage at an early space with whānau, and that's really the bit we need to, um, we all need to understand it's not just about housing that's going to make our people well. And Marion, in 2018, you said that you were afraid for the future of your children. Did you hear anything in Grant Robertson's interview or the government's announcement on Tuesday that gave you heart and hope for your tamariki? In all honesty, no, I didn't. Um, yes, it, there is no silver bullet, according to them, but Māori have their own solutions. Sure. We've, we've already got um, a whole range of strategies that we have... Mm. Um, put forward to the government, but why bother? Because they're not even taking into consideration. I was present at a housing summit that year that I was made homeless because of being at Tipuia Marae. And when I heard from uh, Manaya and Phil Goff that uh, two point odd billion had gone towards transport and a few million had gone towards housing. I questioned them. I questioned them in the room and said to them, that's not right. Why is their money going towards transport when the need is great for Māori, the need is great for homeless, the need is great for Aotearoa? And the numbers are, are shocking. The housing registers, so those in most dire need of housing, mm. 3,500 back in 2014, more than 22,000 today, half are Māori, and in fact the number of Māori on that list has gone up by 20%. Yeah. Did you expect, I suppose last term Winston Peters was in the government fighting for universalism, mm. but did you expect with a strong Labour Māori caucus, this crazy big mandate, and strong yeah. Māori representation in Cabinet, did you expect better from Labour? Absolutely. And, 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 and it's not too late. They, they can turn the things around that we need to, to address. They just need to hear us. They have more Māori ministers in Parliament than ever before. So that's their, um, their opportunity to, to, to do right by us. You know, the other thing around the, the housing issue is about, especially in South Auckland again, our people are so transient. And because they can't... The only permanency they have, if you like, is poverty. But they can't, you can't raise a family if you continue to move houses, move houses, and it's terrible, actually. Some of the schools... I, I'm a 
an achievement of a, of a, of a school in Māngere. The, the, the roles just struggle because the families just keep continue to move, continue mm. to move, continue to move. The housing gives us a, a sense of permanency and, and starts to develop what we call building proud communities. And that, those are the things that we can, can uh, start to address with this new rollout of the plan. And just, I'd be interested to see what the, um, Mr Robinson talks about, Minister Robinson talks about this Māori package. Um, it would be good to see what um, is in that space. The only problem is he's never spoken to us. Mm. Um, sometimes it's about understanding what the community needs as opposed to thinking you know what the community needs. Kia ora, Bernie. I think we're all looking forward to seeing that. Mm. Thank you very much, um, Bernie. And Mary as well, a reminder about the human face and the whanaus behind mm. those numbers as well. Kia ora korua. Thank you very much. Kia ora. Can I just add too that I am now the newly self-appointed Māngai Kāwanatana Māori mō te Hahoretanga me kainga kore Māori, which means that I am the new ambassador and the new face of Māori child poverty and Māori homelessness. My goal is to help all Māori end child poverty as well as Māori homelessness. Kia ora, Mary. Kia ora. We look forward to talking to you more about that. Kia ora. There's new pressure on the Minister in charge of Pike River to consider going further into the mine, with documents revealing the government promised to do just that in 2017. Last week, Andrew Little told News Hub Nation he'd ruled out going beyond the drift, but an earlier Cabinet paper committed to considering it. Some families say he's gone back on his word. Senior reporter Connor Whitten has this exclusive report. In Rowdy Durbridge's garage, not far from Pike River, a tribute to the memory of his son, Dan Hook. This is uh, Dan's bike, but he, uh, he bought it a couple of months before he got killed. 29 is the number on the side in silver to symbolise the men who died inside. Ten years on, it doesn't get easier. Yeah, top bloke. The Pike River drift recovery is almost finished, but the answers and the men remain out of reach. This part of the journey, I find a little relief and, and quite a bit of frustration within how the money is running out and, and we can't really continue. Evidence is still emerging from the Pike River drift, the access tunnel into the mine. This footage obtained by News Hub Nation shows the loader driven by Daniel Rockhouse. Removed this week, a decade later, it's rusted over but still intact. Rockhouse was one of two to survive the disaster. The rest remain entombed in Pike. Stuck behind a roof fall at the end of the drift, where the minister responsible says they'll remain. I've dealt with a, a lot of other falls within a lot of other mines. And um, I, um, I believe in my heart that, um, that this fall here is passable. Last week, Andrew Little told News Hub Nation the families agreed that's as far as it goes. And we were all very clear what the, the mandate was. It was to recover the drift. But the families say there was no such agreement. I, I didn't sign anything to say that um, once we got to the fall, that'd be it. And documents obtained by News Hub Nation prove they never promised to stop at the drift. In fact, the Pike family's reference group asked the government that the possibility of entering the mine workings is left open until the drift's been recovered. A proper assessment can only be made once the rockfall blocking access has been inspected. And documents reveal the government agreed. The Cabinet paper setting up the Pike River Recovery Agency promises 
When the process of recovering the drift is well advanced, the Minister will report to Cabinet on whether any further work to assess the feasibility of re-entering the mine workings should be done. No such assessment has ever taken place, but little ruled it out back in March last year. The recovery was less than a quarter completed and nowhere near the roof collapse. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, to reassess it all and to have a look. Bernie Monk says Little's broken his word. If it is right what he's saying and his documents are saying something else, we're getting lied to. Chloe Nieper's husband Kane was also killed at Pike River. That was our last holiday. Leaving her to raise their son Kalani alone. I want to be able to tell my son what happened to his dad. She believes Kane is just beyond the rooffall in the area known as Spaghetti Junction. But that there's the original Spaghetti Junction. The men waited there at the end of a shift. To have that right in front of us, only metres away, to be able to get to them or get answers, it's just... It's heartbreaking. But standing in the way are two roof collapses, each thought to be about 15 metres long. The area was once considered impassable, and last week Little told News Hub Nation those last metres are a step too far. It's simply not a question of saying it's a short distance away. It is tens and tens of millions of dollars away. But neither the agency nor the government know what entering the body of the mine would cost. In a statement, agency CEO Dave Gorn says the only cost assessment was two years ago. It was very early, informal, internal and rough. While 60 to $100 million had been projected, he says it is very speculative. There has been no detailed planning and nothing specific to limited objectives, such as just going through the roof fall. What's more, experts believe it's possible. I think it's feasible. David Bell is an independent geology expert who previously advised WorkSafe and police. There is definitely scope for doing more if it isn't a major impassable rockfall. Another says gas is not an issue. Ventilation expert Dr Roy Morby consulted on the family's technical advisory group. He says, it's my opinion the recovery agency have sufficient information to develop an appropriate gas management strategy to safely proceed through the fall and further into the mine. I don't understand why they can't like, analyse that, see how much it's going to cost... We asked Andrew Little whether he'd investigate the cost of going further into Pike River Mine. In a statement, he said only that there's been no change to the mandate for recovery of the Pike River Drift. Little has a meeting next week with the Pike River Families Reference Group. They represent some, but not all, of the families. Durbridge is a member and he has a message now. If that happened, Corky Dick, you know, it'd be, uh, it'd be phenomenal. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be over the moon, to be honest with you. Connor Whitten with that report. I'm joined now by our panel, News Hub business reporter Madison Reedy, parliamentary staffer turned PR consultant Ben Thomas, and Matthew Tukake, the chairman of the National, the National Māori Authority. Kia ora koutou. Thank you very much for joining us. Ben, given that the government promised in 2017 to consider going beyond the drift, why do you think Andrew Little is reneging now? This obviously is an unspeakably sad situation going back about 10 years. I think the initial mistake 
was Labour promising to go back into the mine? It's still not clear, even at this stage, what anyone thinks they will find by going back in there. Um, you know, we know what happened in the mine. There was a detailed, there was a Royal Commission of Inquiry. There have been changes to our health and safety system, uh, you know, in order to prevent any more unnecessary deaths, which, I, you know, there is a very real possibility of if we keep going back into that disaster site. Um, you know, it is a tragic situation, but I don't think it's within the power of the New Zealand government to give the families the closure that they want. Do you think, though, Maddie, that it's just, is it about safety? Is it the expense? Is there a lack of political will? I mean, this story will forever break my heart, Tova, but I don't think this was ever about money. You know, this was a commitment to those families that they would go in and that they would bring, hopefully bring their, you know, fathers, brothers and sons back out. I don't think any of this is about cost. I mean, the benefit is to the family. If the government wanted to put more money out to do it, they would do it. I think it's political will, not money. So, Matthew, given that they are so close, mm. do you think that they should take the next step? Look, I'm, I'm a great believer if you're that close, go further. Um, at the end of the day, a promise has been made to those families. I mean, as a Māori, I know what grief and mamai looks like, trust me. But at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do. At some point, we're going to have to make a decision uh, and move from uh, grief into memorial stage. You know, let's, let's have a look at, uh, you know, creating a national memorial down there on the site. Uh, because the last thing I want to do is send more people in there and risk their lives and their safety. Uh, if indeed something does happen, somebody's going to look for somebody else to be blamed. And perhaps a bit of consistency from the government as mm. well. If there is a cabinet paper suggesting that they might do this, the families don't feel like they have this mm. um, commitment from, or this line in the sand from Andrew Little. Do you think that they need to at least be a bit more consistent with their communications? Initially, the commitment to go back into Pike River came at this very untidy time in the Labour Party's history where they were making all sorts of promises it turned out they couldn't deliver. It came around at the same time as Kiwi Build, around the same time as all of these things that aren't quite as, as gut-wrenching, but were also just things that a, a reasonably desperate opposition were kind of spinning off the top of their heads. They should never have made the promise. They set expectations way too high that they would deliver something that they never could. I want to move on to, to housing now because there's been plenty of reaction to Labor's housing announcement this week. Maddie Grant Robertson basically rushing out that tax write-off, blindsiding investors. What are, he, what are you hearing from some of your sources? A complete blindside and what terrifies me and in fact what I'm hearing a lot from property investors, mostly landlords too, but also from the likes of economists is the fact that there's a complete absence of any treasury analysis that I'm aware of on this interest deductibility, this tax change which will slap more money you know, on the cost of owning a rental, especially multiple properties. And there's just been no, no foresight into what impact this could have on the rental market what this could do for house prices. I mean, the way I see it is Grant Robertson has basically yanked a huge handbrake on the economic track, pulled a huge burnout and has no idea how many cars are going to come slamming into him. And the scariest thing is, is that our house prices are so overvalued, they're at the highest cliff they've ever been, that if they do fall, which we don't even know if that will happen, we don't even know how much tax take these policies could bring in, IRD can't tell us that, the economic injury on the way down could be enormous and disastrous. Mm, and, what, and what did you think, Matt? 
did they meet expectations, particularly, you know, we're hearing from Bernie and, and Mary there, do you think that they met expectations, particularly for Māori? Well, let's be really clear here. We've got a, a problem that's decades in the making. Uh, look, we can we can carry on about the bright line test as much as we want, about property investors and all the rest of it, but let's get some facts on the table. Uh, we need to build about 20,000 new homes minimum just for the state sector, all right? We, the average cost of a, a house with no land is about $396,000 in Auckland alone. Uh, somebody try and tell me where we're going to find the capital to build that many homes at that value and also the land to go along with it. It takes about 9 to 12 months to get a house to market fully built. That includes a consenting process on the off chance that the pipes and the drains and the sewage uh, stuff below ground is all ready and it also relies on whether or not we've got enough of a workforce to build these houses. Builders, labourers, chippies, sparkies, roopers, glaziers, plumbers, mm. gasmitters, you name it. And by the way, they can get up to 25% more for doing the same job in Australia who's using construction and infrastructure as economic stimulus right now. Mm. So let's just get a reality check on where we are. We also know that we have a massive problem with the rental affordability market. Now, has anything that's been produced so far reflective of that? So I want the politics out of this and I want us to focus purely and squarely on the reality of what it takes to stand homes mm. up now. I want to put the politics back in for a second okay. and carry on about the Brightline <laughs> test. Ben, do you think an extension of the Brightline test to 10 years, is that Jacinda Ardern breaking a promise um, when she said she wasn't going to introduce a capital gains tax under her watch? Yeah, of course. And But I think it's an acceptable breaking of a promise. Um, what we saw with its uh, you know, budget responsibility rules in the previous term was the government establishing its economic bona fides for fiscal management. Um, they did that successfully, and what that does is it buys you some leeway, just as it did with John Key and Bill English to say that they were going to have tax, you know, revenue-neutral tax changes that actually ended up costing quite a lot. Um, you know, you, you do buy that credibility uh, by... by you know, ramping up your record. The, the question is, will it do anything? I think Madison's right. Um, you know, previously I've criticised the government for not being nearly bold enough on housing. I think it's very bold to in implement a policy when you basically have no idea what it will do, mm. um, which is the, the case with these interest deductibility uh, rules. The other thing that's really interesting is that, so the way that it's been done is this law will be passed in October. It will re be retrospective back to today. And yet some of the details, like will uh, new builds be exempt from interest deductibility mm. restrictions, are not actually set out in the documentation the government's it released. very confusing. Now, Grant Robertson repeatedly said in that interview, new builds will be exempt. Well, but actually, if you go... about that morning, TV, actually. Yeah, if, if you yeah. go to beehive.govt.nz and check out the government's official communications, they say that's still being worked on. Now, either they were up late last night working on it, or there's some real message confusion here, and it's not really acceptable to let people, you know, plan for things they'll be liable from today but not tell them about it till mm. October. I think they still haven't figured out what, how they want to term a new bill, but that's something you figure out mm. before the policy um, is announced. Maddie, so much squirming from the Finance Minister, from the Prime Minister, from any politician you ever ask about whether house prices need to fall. Do they just need to be up front and say, yes, there's too much heat, it needs to come down? Absolutely, absolutely. And as you were talking about, you know, messaging and, and communication, you know, uncertainty counts for a lot, economically speaking. And even just by not having a clear message... And 
and using confusing words like we want to slow growth, you know, unsustainable growth. It's just up or down. That's as simple as it is, you know. I, we know that they can't stay where they are and tilt the balance towards first-home buyers. We know that you're siding with them. Just say it. You know, just call this a war on property investors. Yeah. Call yeah. it what it is. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the terminology used, quite frankly, is just nonsense. It's ha. I mean, just say it, what it, call it what it is. This bright line test, for example, it's a capital gains tax. Let's just call it a CGT, move on with life, set the parameters around what the CGT needs to look like, learn the lessons from what happened in Australia, and come on, let's all just get on with it. But this overuse of language that, quite frankly, the average New Zealander, let alone the average Māori, cannot understand, means that you're looking at the TV every night thinking, but what did you just say? I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> so, but remember, over Overall, it benefits the government to have rising house prices. The majority of people who turn out to vote for elections live in an owner-occupied house. The government does not want prices to fall. That's it correct. does not want it to sound in the media like prices will fall. What it wants is for people to believe that it is doing something to solve the consciences of some guilty, you know, 10 <laughs> property owners and to make its base think that maybe there's a bright future ahead. And on that happy note, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Clear message to the government. Stop playing political silly buggers with housing. Up next, stark warnings about rising racism against the New Zealand Asian community. There's a warning from the New Zealand Asian community. Racism is rising and needs to be stopped before there's a tragic repeat of the Christchurch terrorist attack or the Atlanta spa shootings. Anna Bracewell Worrell with this report. A car pulled up and started throwing beer bottles at me and calling me uh, racial slurs. Every single day, pull their eyes back and say Ching Chong Chinese. I had an incident where someone threatened to kill me and it was very specific as to how he was going to kill me. The woman come out and are pointing at me, go back to China, like that. All of these people have been told to go home. They are home, even if sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Steph Highway Tan went to school in Auckland. Trying to fit in with predominantly Pākehā classmates meant rejecting her mother's homemade lunches. My mum would make me an incredible lunch of Chinese food and people would smell it and say, that smelly, disgusting Chinese food. Racism followed her as she grew up. You're cool foreign Asian or you're hot or good looking foreign Asian. Do you see us on a different spectrum? How do you view our physical appearance? The effect, battling with an internalised feeling of being less than. It's very embedded and you start to believe that you genuinely are inferior. It can mean withdrawing from society. It can also mean saying, hey, I'm really Kiwi and so I'm going to distance myself from my family, their traditions, from a foreign accent. It might even mean using racial discrimination against members of your own ethnic group, making fun of their accent, that kind of thing. There's a long history of anti-Chinese racism. From 1881 until 1944, Chinese migrants faced a steep tax to enter New Zealand. Ships could only bring in one Chinese migrant for every 10 tonnes of cargo. That dehumanisation of the subordinate worker makes them a more obvious foreigner, right? And sometimes that foreigner can fit in, but if the international circumstances change, all of a sudden it's real easy to take a dehumanized group and turn them into a threat. That's what happened when COVID-19 emerged from Wuhan. 
Further exacerbated by the former US president obsessed with blaming China for the pandemic, drumming up anti-China rhetoric. Nations going to defeat this uh, terrible China virus. Kung flu. The China virus, as I call it, because it came from China. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. When people in positions of authority, mainstream racist ideas and mainstream racist rhetoric like that, it emboldens people and it makes people feel like it's okay to say those things. Figures released by the Human Rights Commission in February found 44% of Chinese New Zealanders feel unsafe due to blame for COVID-19. 54% experienced racism since the outbreak. 20% of those people hadn't experienced it before COVID-19. In March last year, at the height of COVID concerns, a stranger sprayed a cleaning product on Francesco Hernandez at an Auckland mall. I have no idea what it was because um, I didn't confront him or anything. Uh, it was soapy, for sure. These Asian New Zealanders, their experiences of racism were front of mind on Tuesday when awful news broke from Atlanta. A mass shooting targeting spas. The killings happened amid a surge of hate crimes against Asian Americans. Eight people killed at three different locations, six of them of Asian descent. It struck home in Auckland. I think that could have been my mother, my sister. Around the US, groups rallied to support the Asian community. In Auckland, Tan organised a march for Saturday. I don't see these events as just isolated lone wolves, extremists. We as a society breed this extreme behaviour because of what we normalise just on a day-to-day -day basis. It's those everyday little comments, such as go back to China, Ching Chong, horrible slurs like that. That is what normalises to the extremists that we are a vulnerable group that deserves to be targeted. Muslim communities warned police of rising racism before the Christchurch terror attacks. They felt unheard. Tan's issuing a similar warning. It could happen again against the Asian community. We don't want it to get bad enough that some horrific extreme event has to happen before we pay attention. Race Relations Commissioner Ming Foon has escalated concerns about a copycat event as well. Authorities really need to be alert. Other groups are on the alert too. Paparua monitors online hate. It says anti-Chinese sentiment is rising, especially among anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown movements. Police can record whether crimes are motivated by hate, but hate crime is not an offence in and of itself. Tan wants that changed so that assaults motivated by hate carry a heavier sentence. And adding that into policy here really symbolises that we cannot see each other as complete different people. But mostly, she just wants New Zealand to do better. In our pandemic response, it doesn't help blaming anyone and being racist to anyone. It's simply racist. What we need to do is come together and support one another to keep each other safe. It was another fiery week in the chamber with clashes over capital gains and even calls for the Speaker's resignation. Here's Finn Hogan with the week that was in Wellington. Well, to the surprise of no one, there was a whole lot of housing in the House this week. Could now be subject to tax on their family home. Under yes. the policy introduced yes. by yes. the national Order. government. But now in his fourth year of Speaker, Mr Mallard seems to be losing patience. The Leader of the Opposition thinks she's got the answer, she shouldn't ask the question. Well, I just live in hope sometime uh, in this House that someone will ask a genuine question. And while Swarbrick came out swinging at National... I dare them! 
to tell me that those New Zealanders in the bottom half are not hardworking. But David Seymour was less than impressed with her arguments. Yeah, I mean, this is why the Green Party have the sometimes no disrespect, kooky reputation that they do. And could the time of Speaker Trevor Mallard be coming to an end? Because if this fella gets his way, it will. I and the National Party believe it is critical that Trevor Mallard resign as Speaker of the House. However, as the Speaker serves at the pleasure of the PM and Labour, I think we'll be hearing him shout for a long time yet. And that's all from us for now. Namihi Nui, thank you so much for watching. We're off air for Easter, so we'll see you again in a fortnight. Kakite. This program was made with the assistance of the New Zealand On Air Platinum Fund.